Well, uh, again, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I hope you're having a wonderful day and you get treated really well today. My wife told me that she doesn't want a card and that she doesn't want any chocolates. She wants all that money to spend on plants for her garden. And she doesn't want me to pick them out. She just wa- she's going to go get them herself, okay? So I gotta, still got to try to figure out what I'm going to do, you know, for that. But... Uh, you know, Ken's going to be gone this week and next week, obviously. He's, uh, uh, he went to Florida to try to get some sun, but the Lord blessed us too, it looks like. So thank God for that. But uh, over the next two weeks, Scott and I are going to be teaching through the book of Ruth, actually. So today we're looking at chapters one and two. Um, but because it's Mother's Day, I really wanted to look at one of the great examples of a mother-child relationship in the Bible, Granted, this particular relationship is between a mother and a daughter-in-law, and of course, as we all know, daughter-in-law relationship with the mom is one of the easiest to navigate. So today's going to be academic. You guys got this down, right? Um, Also, you're in for a treat because I'm a self-identified expert in this arena, so it should be really good today. But our scripture reading really is one of my favorites in, in the entire Bible. Um, when my wife and I got married, um, you know, Foy officiated our wedding, and uh, this was the passage that was picked out. And it just speaks to that devotion, right? We're gonna be, I'm going to be with you to, to the very end. And um, so for me, this, uh, this story has a special place in my heart, but also because, you know, for context, you know, Ruth is a narrative, and it's just powerful. So I wanted to read chapter one in its entirety, but I wanted to give you a little break so you're sitting down. Um, But here's Ruth chapter one. It says, "In in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, which means God is my king. His wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named uh, Orpah. I keep wanting to say Oprah every time I see it, so if I say that, if I reference Miss Winfrey in any way, just forgive me. Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road and, uh, that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and, she, and said to her, we'll go back, and, and they said to her, we will go back with you into your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters, Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? 
It's part of the Leverett marriage law. No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud together, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Murrah, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went back full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So there's chapter one of Ruth. Um, you know, as we read, the book of Ruth really begins with three separate tragedies. And the first tragedy is a national tragedy. And it's referred to in verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. And so the setting of Ruth is during that time of the judges. And these were difficult times in the nation of Israel. And so the story of Ruth is like a ray of sunshine breaking through the storm clouds. Ruth is often described as a diamond. And there's nothing that shows the brilliance of a diamond more than setting it on a deep black velvet cloth and then shining a light on the jewel. And it just brilliance dazzles, it radiates. And so the time of the judges is that black backdrop and the gem of Ruth is juxtaposed with it. And the time of the judges was marked by what's called the judges cycle. It was a time where uh, the Israelites would enjoy the blessing and prosperity of God, but that would lead them to become you know, content with themselves and self-satisfied and they would lead them into immorality. And their immorality, uh, in that the Lord would take off his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, and oppression would come upon the people. Uh, nations would come and invade, whether it was the Moabites, which happened in chapter three of Judges, the Midianites, uh, the Canaanites, the Philistines, oppression would come. And then Israel would call out to the Lord. They'd have a penitent heart. They would repent. They would call out to the Lord, and the Lord would send a judge to save them. Salvation would come upon them. And they would be saved, and a revival would break out in the land as people turned to the Lord. But typically, after the judge passed away, after they enjoyed that blessing and prosperity, they would go back into immorality again. And so this cycle just goes over and over and over again in the time of the judges. And, and Judges was really a dark time, especially even in the area of Bethlehem. The end of Judges, it's, it's remarkable, because Judges chapters 19 through 20, 21 um, describes the story of a Levite and his concubine. So a concubine is like a second-rate uh, wife. And so his wife was from Bethlehem, right? So contemporary with Ruth, they might have known each, or sorry, Naomi and this woman might have known each other. But the Levite wasn't treating his concubine well, and so she left him. She went back home to her father's house in Bethlehem, Ephrathah of Judah. 
And the Levite goes back and talks to her dad and, and he tries to win her back and, and he finally convinces the dad, he convinces the concubine you know, to come back and be with me. And they hang out and they, you know, they drink together and they eat together and they're having a good time. And the, da- the, uh, you know, the father of this concubine is, is trying to urge, well, just stay a little bit longer, stay a little bit longer, stay a little bit longer. And finally he's like, no, we've gotta go, we're gonna leave. And they leave and, and they pass you know, through Jerusalem, five miles north, and they pass uh, on another few miles to a town uh, called Gibeah. It's Gibeah of Saul, is later what it's known as. And it's nighttime, and so they decide to stay there. A kind older gentleman invites them in. And in the town of Gibeah, all the men band together, and they rap on the door, and they threaten to break it down, and, uh, and they want to rape uh, this gentleman, this Levite. And so instead, the Levite sends out his concubine, and they gang rape her until uh, she passes away, until she's murdered, essentially. And when the Levite wakes up in the morning, he kicks her because he treats her well still. And uh, she doesn't wake up. And so he takes her and he cuts her up into pieces and sends the pieces of her body to all the various tribes of Israel so that they might uh, gather their armies together to fight against Gibeah of Saul. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, that's, that's Judges chapters 19 through 21, and that happened 10 miles north of Bethlehem, where the story of Ruth is taking place, right? So when I talk about it being a dark time, it was a really dark time. It was a really dangerous place to be. 10 miles away is like the South Hill, right? It's like downtown Spokane. It's not that far away. And people there, I'm not sure about either. So... So it's a different part of town, you know. Um, But four times in the book of Judges, it states that there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I think, you know, in a similar way, our country suffers from that lack of leadership. People do what they think is right in their own eyes. They don't reference God and their thought process. And people say things to that, that end, right? Everybody does what's right in their own own eyes, they say, well, I think schools, they shouldn't have prayer or Bible readings. It should be a neutral place. It should be essentially a secular place where, you know, all religions are basically equal by shutting them all out, including the Lord. Um, And if you think that way, then you're giving up the truth that God is the creator, that he's the Lord of all things. You're casting him out. And so shouldn't, shouldn't we worship the Lord by acknowledging him as creator? As we teach our little ones about his creation, shouldn't we reference that it was from God, he's the creator? Do you think by neutering and sidelining the gospel and education that we're not really opening the door for the demonic to fill that vacuum? Do you think the mental health crisis of this next generation has anything to do with the God of life and goodness and truth being ostracized from the classroom? where students spend dozens of hours every week, it's not working out well for us. No, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Or people say things like this. They say things like, I think a woman should choose whether or not she uh, can have an abortion. And I I say, shouldn't we acknowledge that God gave life to this little human being, that God gave life to this little person and placed this little girl in the womb to grow and and to be nourished and to be protected? 
Don't we acknowledge God in our decisions? I was even watching the um, uh, Trump town hall on CNN, which uh, that, I think that hostess girl got an education that day. But even still, even, even Trump, he's like, well, you know, I believe in the exceptions in, you know, in rape and incest and these sort of, I, I believe in the exceptions. You can have an abortion then. It's like, what other arena is it okay to murder an innocent human being because something bad happened previously? Why do we allow it? Why don't we speak up? Doesn't Proverbs 31, doesn't God say in his word, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die? Open your mouth for the speechless? Who else is more unable to speak than a little one in the womb? Shouldn't we stand up for them? No, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Or people say things like, I think there are many different genders and people can move between genders. But shouldn't we look to the Lord who created us male and female so that we might produce, as Malachi says, godly offspring who worship him and follow him? No, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And I think some people struggle with the presentation of these biblical teachings because we're not sympathetic enough with people who are struggling in their sins or perhaps people become annoyed with the frequency that we bring these things up. But I've got two points on that. On the frequency, um, you're, we are being, you are being constantly bombarded with antichrist propaganda. What, what do I mean by antichrist? I mean things that are contrary to the teachings of Christ. The Bible is the word of God. So whether we're watching the news, TV shows, whether we're watching movies, reading books, whether we're uh, surfing the internet or we're on social media or we're watching TV and advertisements come up, we're at a sporting event, every store this next month in June is gonna be promoting immorality. And so we're being continuously conditioned to think that immorality is normal and good. My wife and I, we rented a movie and it started out good. It was about this guy named Otto, right? And uh, it started out good, but halfway through, they start interjecting this trans girl and trying to pull on your heartstrings. But really what they're doing is they're trying to normalize something that the Lord has called immorality. And it's propaganda. It's antichrist propaganda because God made them male and female so that they might produce godly offspring who worship the Lord. And so we have to speak against it. Who else is gonna talk about it? <laughs> They're not gonna talk about it at schools. You got, the only place you're gonna hear the gospel really is here at church. The only place you're gonna hear the truth really is gonna be here. So we have to speak regularly against these sins in our culture and the propaganda that tries to deceive us to believe not only that sin is not bad, but sin really isn't sin at all. And on that former, about not being sympathetic, to those who are in their sins, um, we have to remember that Jesus was tortured. He was hung on a cross to save us from sins. And it's a satanic mockery that tramples on the blood of Christ when we entertain and endorse sin. In our culture, people live as if God isn't the Lord over creation. People live even many Christians, as, as if he's just an idol in a closet that we visit once a week on Sundays. He's, he's not regarded as the Lord of all. The teachings of the Lord are full of grace and mercy and truth. 
And the Lord says, acknowledge me in all your ways and I'll make your paths straight. But our people don't acknowledge him. They don't acknowledge him as God over all things. And we're deceived into thinking that there's alternative, alternative uh, legitimate ways to worship him or to walk when he tells us there's a straight and narrow path. Jesus is the son of God. There's no alternative to being right with God outside of being a Christian, outside of knowing him. And so our nation is really just like Israel in so many ways. It's dark. People say, I think about this, I think that. We've enjoyed the prosperity and the blessing of God. We've grown fat and happy, and we've forgotten the way of the Lord. In so doing, we've failed to teach our children his ways. We've fallen into immorality in all its various forms, and we've embraced demonic doctrines of spirits that stand opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're teetering on the brink of oppression, which is the next step in the progression of nations in the judges' cycle. There's no king in the land. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But when Jesus is king, you no longer live according to what's right in your eyes. You humble yourself before him and you live according to what is right in his eyes. You submit yourself to the teachings of the word even if you don't fully understand the reasons why at this point in your life. Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure but by keeping it according to your word? So they're living in a tragedy of a nation, just like we are mired in sin and moral relativism. But it's not just that tragedy. There was a second tragedy and a third tragedy. The second tragedy was ecological. The nation of Israel was beset by a severe famine. The disaster drove people to look for a better life elsewhere, including Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her two sons. They moved to Moab from Bethlehem in Judea. In Judah. And uh, this famine was severe. I mean, they're a little bit different than us. I think in, uh, especially here in like the Spokane area, we're blessed by that Spokane Rathdrum Aquifer, which is like almost this limitless supply of water. It's not that way in Israel. They don't have irrigation systems there. They just, they plant seed and they rely on it to rain. God's gotta bring the rain. And if he doesn't bring the rain, it's gonna be bad news. Now, there's an irony because the, uh, the town of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And it's just ironic that the house of bread has no food, right? But we know that it's really the disobedience of the nation that led to the famine. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 17 says, so if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful, or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce." and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. I think there are so many tragedies in life that could have been avoided if we had just listened to the Lord. Um, you know, my wife and I, we waited uh, to have relations until we were married, like the Bible tells us to, but there were a lot of opportunities and times before that when I could have been disobedient to the Lord, um, when I could have just hooked up with some girl 
uh, in college or in high school or afterwards, but the Bible tells me um, uh, to not awaken love until the time is right. And so um, I was just obedient to the Lord and we waited and now we have kids and we have a nice home and everything, but then I look at, there's like so many other people of my friends in their, in their group who didn't listen to the Lord um, and they brought all sorts of ruin on their life, multiple divorces in their life, um, you know, kids uh, who are estranged from them. And if they had listened to the Lord, if they were obedient to his word, then they could have avoided so many of these tragedies. And really, it was disobedience that led to famine for the people of Israel, but it was also a disobedience uh, and a disbelief uh, in the life of Naomi and her family that led to their own tragedy. You know, the land of Israel uh, was the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When the people left Egypt, it was unbelief and fear that led them to start looking back to Egypt. How often when things get difficult in the Christian life, we say, man, you know, things aren't going well. Uh, my life was so much easier before the Lord. And the Israelites did the same thing in the desert. But it's a disbelief in the Lord that leads us to flee from him. Things get tough, and so we're, we say, I'm gonna go back to doing the things that I used to do before I was saved. But in doing that, you go back to slavery, as the Israelites wanted when they went back to Egypt, or wanted to go back to Egypt. We leave the life of blessing through disbelief. We expect that by leaving the Lord, things will go easier for us, but really we find in time that we're the most miserable people on the planet. We can't enjoy sin anymore because we really belong to the Lord, we're born again, and he lives with you, and so you can't enjoy sin, and you're grieving God by your lifestyle, so the Holy Spirit who lives in you is constantly grieved by your decisions and unbelief, but you're too proud to humble yourself. You're too proud to repent and return to the Lord, and so you can't enjoy sin, and you can't enjoy the Lord because you've chosen misery through pride. Um, we, we gotta know that if we leave the Lord when things are tough, that it's gonna be miserable for us. You left the pasture of the Lord, you left the land of milk and honey, and you're gonna be wholly unhappy until you return to him. But he's always there. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and come back to him. So they're living in the tragedy of famine, which is the result of disobedience. And the third tragedy in the story is a family tragedy. You know, because of the famine, Naomi and her family left. It was supposed to be a short time, but they never seemed to find the time to come back to Israel. So while so sojourning in the land of Moab, Naomi's sons embraced the culture and they married Moabite women. And tragedy struck the family when Naomi's husband died, a devastating blow to their family. He was the provider, he was the protector. But soon after, both of their sons died too. So now Naomi, she's left. She's in a foreign land. She lost her entire family. Only her Moabite daughters-in-law are left. Their names Orpah and Ruth. No grandchildren either. Because of the great tragedy, she tells these young ladies to just go back home. She has no more sons to pick from. It isn't gonna have, she's not gonna have any more it's a serious thing to consider that your actions as a parent or grandparent can have those kind of long-term effects on your children. And Naomi is living with this. I mean, they had in mind that they're gonna leave Israel because of a lack of bread. 
They're going to save their family. They're going to go to Moab. It's going to save us. There's probably food over there. And they left the Lord and his land, and it destroyed them. And sometimes we wonder why the Lord doesn't bless our lives. But it's because we've wandered off through disobedience. Years ago, Pastor Warren Wearsby, uh, he's since gone to be with the Lord, but he said the following. Uh, Many years ago, I was in a prayer meeting with a number of Youth for Christ leaders. We've been asking God to bless the ministry and that project, and I suppose the word bless was used scores of times as we prayed. And then Jacob Stam prayed, Lord, we've asked you to bless all these things, but please, Lord, make us blessable. Had Naomi been in that meeting, she would have had to confess, Lord, I'm not blessable. She had left the good land, she had left the Lord, and she was staying in a place that she wasn't supposed to be. And this family tragedy happened. So all three tragedies, national, ecological, the family tragedy, were really the result of a spiritual tragedy, right? The nation was in sin, individuals were in disobedience, and they were reaping the consequences. And that's why the merciful judge Jesus came to save the world from our spiritual tragedy of sin. He bore it and its consequences for us on the cross. But in comes Ruth here. Now Naomi and her daughters-in-law, they packed their bags in Moab. They've just started on the road, just left the house, and she turns to them and they stop and she tells them, why don't you guys just go back home? You know, Orpah, Ruth, they carried out all their obligations to their mother-in-law. Naomi said that they showed her kindness, kesed, which is love, kindness, goodness. They were generous. They'd honored their mother-in-law. They'd honored their their deceased husbands. They honored their father-in-law with all their actions. Everything that they needed to do was done. So just, why don't you guys just go home? Just, let's just reset. Start fresh. Go back to your parents' house. Let's just forget this whole thing happened. I'll go my way. You guys go your way. And um, maybe you'll get a new husband, some good husbands, Moabites from your culture, and it'll be, it'll be better that way. But it's sad. I mean, Naomi, she's so bitter that she missed this great opportunity right in front of her. These two young women who had grown up worshiping demons were packed their bags, ready to go to the land of the Lord. And she's not in her right state of mind. And she tells them, why don't you just go back home? And how many times have we been in that place where we had a great opportunity to share the Lord with somebody and we kicked ourselves afterwards because we didn't realize it was right in front of us? I think one of our prayers needs to be, Lord, open my eyes so that I could see the opportunities that are in front of me and help me to walk in those. But I think also Orpah, she gets a bad rap because she went home. But really, I mean, she carried out everything required of her. She obeyed her, the word of her mother-in-law She kissed her, she went home, but then she just disappeared from the story. She made the right choice, she she seemed to do everything right, but it wasn't the right, right choice, if you know what I mean. Because there's times when we're faced with multiple right choices. This seems good, this seems good, this seems good, this seems good, but I'm not sure what exactly I'm supposed to do in this situation. But we need to trust in the Lord and acknowledge him in all our ways, and he tells us he's going to make our paths straight. I mean, years ago, we were doing some uh, work in the parking lot. We actually just uh, did a bunch of work in the children's lot. It's really nice over there. But years ago, we were doing some work with all the parking lots. I think we were resurfacing, restriping it. And um, 
And so all the cars needed to be, to be moved. And um, so we put notes on all the cars. And um, there was one car that just had this stack of notes on it. And finally, the day came. And it's like, well, the car's still here. And we've put the notes on. We've got the signs on all the posts that say, you get towed. This is a private property. And so, um, so we made the call. The towing company came, took the car away. And later that day, this kid comes in. And he's all upset. He's, man, he's a teenager. He had moved here from out of town, and all of his belongings were in that vehicle. And, you know, he gave the sob story, right? It, he's like, you know, I was staying at my friend's house. I didn't know that this was private property. I, all my stuff is in there. He's like, I just got a job. I haven't got paid yet. I get paid on this day. And kind of all these things. And um, we just felt bad for him, you know? Um, just felt bad for this kid. And I was like, you know what? All right, well, we'll help you get your car back. And so um, went through this whole, whole ordeal because he didn't own the car. His mom owned the car. And so uh, when, when you know, I called her and talked to her, she was all upset finding out that her son's homeless, basically. She didn't know that. And so I had to get her signature. She'd email it me. It was this whole, like, it took, like, all day to get this kid's car back, okay? Um, and we paid for it and everything. And he was real appreciative and real grateful and everything. And, um, and then he actually came back after he got paid and he wanted to pay me back for it. I was like, no, dude, you, that's okay. You don't have to do it. That's all right. Well, th that was years ago. And a couple weeks ago, he came, he found me. And he's like, hey, do you remember me? And I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you remember when you towed my car? I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you never know. People are mad at you, right? And he's like, I just want to say thank you. Like, that led me to a, a start a relationship with the Lord, that whole ordeal. And I was like, I should tow more people's cars and see what happens, you know? But, like, it, it would have been the right choice for me to say, dude, we had the signs up. You shouldn't have moved your car. It's your responsibility, right? I mean, legally and everything, it, it would have been right. Um, but I think the Lord gave a grace in that moment, a wisdom that normally I don't have, because normally I'm not that nice. Um, but, and, he, and, he, and he worked it out for his good, and I think the same thing happened with Ruth in this story. She could have made the right choice like her sister-in-law. She could have just returned home, but instead she was led by the Lord, and she clung to Naomi and decided that it was now her duty her responsibility to follow Naomi to whatever end. I think we have to be sensitive to the Lord like that. You know, there could be multiple things that are okay choices or good or right choices, but Lord, what do you want me to do? And just be sensitive to that and walk in that. You know, Ruth, she was a, a Moabite. She was a Gentile. It's interesting. There's only two books of the Bible that are named after women, Esther and Ruth. Um, Esther, you guys know the story of Esther. She, she was a Jew. She married a, a Gentile king and uh, ended up saving her people. But Ruth was a true and true Gentile, not a Hebrew at all. And it's fascinating. So in this community where, one, women were regarded often as second-class citizens, and then, two, where foreigners were third-class citizens, there's an entire book of the Bible that's named after a foreign woman. Ruth, the Moabite. And it really goes to prove something the Apostle Paul said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said, 
Now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Galatians 3, 28. He also said in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now certainly the promises of God to Israel and the land and the Mosaic covenant stand, but God's great desire is that men and women would seek him with all their heart. And in so doing, Ruth the Moabitess is a true daughter of Abraham. She forsook her gods and she followed the Lord. She was with Naomi. And she was going against the example of her people. The, the Moabites had an embarrassing origin story. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's nephew Lot? Well, Lot had two daughters and the eldest didn't believe that the Lord would provide offspring. So she engaged in incest. She got her father drunk enough so that he slept with her and she became pregnant and her son was Moab and the father of the Moabites. And so the sin of sexual immorality was something that really persisted in their culture. In Numbers, uh, the end of Numbers, the story of Balaam, he's trying to, he's hired by uh, Balak to curse the Israelites and the Lord had blessed them so Balaam, this prophet, can't curse them. But what he does is he gets Moabite and Midianite women to go in and sleep with the Israelites so that they commit sexual immorality and fornication and adultery. And in so doing, he knew that the wrath of God would come upon the Israelite camp. But that was something that the ladies were more than willing to do because the sexual immorality was persistent in their culture. And the Moabites had their own gods. You know, chief among them, they worshiped the god Chemosh. Uh, and one typical practice of the Moabites was to offer their children as sacrifices. It's to, the story is told in 2 Kings 3, 26 through 27. So by leaving Moab, Ruth was leaving her people, their practices, their gods, their worship. She forsook her former way of life to learn a new way. And in so doing, an entire book of the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit was named after her. And when we believe on the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ, we forsake our old way of doing things. There's a new way of living. You follow Christ. You become a disciple of his word. You read his word. His word, you, you hunger for his word. His word has a new place in your life. The way people do things may go to the wayside. The way you used to do things, they go away. All things are new. The things your, your people used to worship on Sunday and at night go to the way. You have a new life in Christ. You take his yoke upon you and you learn from him. And so that's what Ruth did here too. Now, so Ruth clung to Naomi and they start this long trek home. You know, she left Bethlehem with a husband, two sons, the hope for a better life, and now she's on the, on the way home with nothing. And it's a long walk. It's 50 miles. Uh, they go down the scorching hot Dead Sea Valley, barren, salty, and then they go up the dangerous Jericho Road. You guys remember the story of the Good Samaritan uh, where the guy got robbed and left for dead 
um, that was on the Jericho road up from Jericho to Jerusalem. So they're going the same road. They got no men to protect them. It's just Ruth and Naomi, this long 50-mile walk through the hot desert, all the while knowing that she's going to show up to a people. She, She never texted, you know. She never called them. Never called her mom, you know. It was a bad Mother's Day. She never sent a letter, never sent an email, never sent a text. She's going to show up, and, and people are going to look at her, and she's going to be the talk of the town. And everybody's going to be talking about her, right? And she's going to have to retell the tragic story of what happened over and over and over again. And for those of you who have experienced tragedies, isn't one of the hardest parts having to retell the story of what happened? over and over and over again. And every time you tell the person of what happened, they get, you know, they get overcome with emotion, they start tearing up, and it makes you emotional as well. You know what I mean? It's like you have to tell it over and over again. It's good, it's healthy to be able to tell the story. It's healing, but it's hard. It's painful. And how many of you have dreaded telling that bad news over and over again? How many of you have been afraid to meet somebody when you know something bad has happened to them? right? Some, somebody at work, something terrible happened to them. They took some time off, and they're going to be coming back into work on Monday, and you're just like, you're a little bit anxious. You're a little bit fearful. You're like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say to them. How am I going to help them? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? I feel all awkward about this. And then there's other people who are actually, like, really nice, compassionate people, and they're like, oh, well, I'm well, just going to love them, you know? Uh, but I'm not one of those persons. I'm one of those awkward people, okay? But, right? But, you guys know what it's like. But even still, she's on this long 50-mile journey, quiet, dark. Naomi still returns with her only daughter-in-law. And, and it's not like she's returning empty. She's coming home with a Moabite, right? <laughs> it's like, like the Moabites weren't allowed to even participate in the worship at the, at the tabernacle because of the sins that happened with Balaam in Numbers. Like, there's like a curse on the Moabites. And so she's coming home without husband, without sons, but with a Moabite. What, what's going to happen? And so she returned, she says, empty. I left full, I returned empty. And she tries renaming herself. The name Mara just means bitter. So Naomi means pleasant. She's renaming herself Bitter. And typically, names were given as descriptors of a person's uh, traits, their personality, after a child was a few years old. So Naomi must have been a joy. She must have been a a refreshment. She must have been just a pleasure of a person to be around. But now she's bitter. She's trying to rename herself bitter. But it's interesting that the name never stuck. No one ever calls her Mara. The name didn't stick. Now she turned back to the land of the Lord. In spite of the tragedy, in spite of the loss, she turned to the Lord. She went back to the place of blessing. She went back to where the Lord is. She had made a a terrible decision. She left the land of the Lord. She went to Moab and all this hardship happened. But she turned away from that godless people and their practices and she set herself on the path of righteousness to go back to the Lord. And some of you have gone through terrible tragedy in life, but the story isn't over as long as you turn to the Lord. The Lord is able to make dry bones live. He's able to make streams flow in the desert. 
He's able to cause a dry seed to burst forth into life at the scent of water. There's always hope when we turn back to the Lord. Besides, Naomi wasn't telling the truth. She wasn't empty. She had the Lord, and she had Ruth. And the Lord wouldn't allow her to stay in that bitter place forever. After the tragedy here in chapter two, I would read it, but for sake of time, uh, we don't really have that at our disposal. But uh, in chapter two, uh, things start to turn a little bit. And uh, they, they settle down in Bethlehem, and Ruth goes back to work. Now, after tragedy, we take that time off, people minister to us, but eventually we have to get back to work. In that household with a mother-in-law who's naming herself bitter, Ruth had a great place to go. It was called work. <laughs> they didn't have food. There was a great place to go. It was called work. And, um, and she wanted to get out of that negative environment and provide for her mother-in-law. So Ruth tells her mother that she's going to go find a field to glean in, a field where she can find favor. It's interesting that Ruth is willing to work. She's willing really to lay her life on the line because it's dangerous. Remember, it's, it's the time of the judges. Remember what happened 10 miles north a whole town full of guys uh, uh, murdered and raped a woman, uh, and it caused a whole civil war, essentially. There's no police force. There's no 911. There's nobody to call. And just 10 miles away was the town of Gibeah. But instead of a police force, it was supposed to be the men of the family who were the protectors of the families. They were supposed to have weapons, and they were supposed to protect their wives and their children. So here we have a widow with no husband, extremely vulnerable to violence and molestation, even in Bethlehem. Still, Ruth goes to work, trusting that she might find favor. She actually says, let me go and uh, go to a field that I might find favor and that I might find grace in. So Ruth is starting to understand a little bit about the Lord, even after her own personal tragedy, losing her own husband. And the Lord was there at work, the word says that Ruth happened to come to a portion belonging to a man named Boaz. Now, in a world where God supernaturally guides his people, this is no chance meeting. This is providence at work. You know, providence is the manifestation of divine care or direction. I have a family member who's not a believer, and I said, I say things, something happened, and it's, it was God's providence. And he says, no, it's coincidence. No, it's providence. No, it's coincidence. We get in this argument, we go back and forth, Right. Um, it's the Lord who is guiding them. And it was the Lord who is guiding Ruth here. The owner of the field shows up to see how the harvest is going. His name's Boaz. And this beautiful exchange happens, right? So remember, it's the time of the judges. Things are real dark. And Boaz, the owner of the field, shows up to work. And he says, may the Lord be with you. And the workers all reply, may the Lord bless you. Isn't that a cool greeting? I just think it's a cool greeting. It's not something we say, I'm like, sup? And, and the other guy's like, hey, you know? Like, that's our greetings now. That's our salutations, right? May the Lord be with you. May the Lord bless you. Salutations were common in the ancient world just as they are today. Um, but today, most of our greetings aren't anything divine. I, I have a tag on the end of my email. It's automatic. It says, God bless, at the end of my emails which is always a great check because I have to go back and re read my email just to make sure it's in line with that, that, uh, that farewell at the end and make sure I'm not chewing somebody out too bad that I can't actually write God bless at the end. But, you know, wealthy landowners in their time, 
they typically had male and female servants or hired workers uh, who plowed through the fields. Those workers were provided with food. Those workers were provided with water, sometimes shade for breaks. Um, but poor people, widows, foreigners, um, they weren't part of the work crew, but they could come through afterwards. They can kind of pick up the leftovers, and that was basically their way of uh, sustenance. In chapter 2, we find ourselves entering into the midst of a work harvest. It's the barley harvest. It's probably in May. It's about this time of year in Israel. And um, the wheat harvest was a, a few weeks later, uh, end of May, beginning of June, somewhere in there in Israel, at least. And... Um, you know, as much as the Bible uses harvesting language and metaphors, I thought we'd take a moment to just look at the different stages of the harvest. It gives us a better idea of the story of Ruth, but also so many metaphors in Scripture. So the first step in harvest is the cutting. And it was usually done, with, uh, uh, done by men and usually with like a hand sickle. And so I've got a picture here. This is uh, from the Iron Age, ancient. Uh, this one's from ancient Greece. Uh, so the time of the judges was actually in the time of the Iron Age, after the Bronze Age. Remember, Moses made the bronze serpent. Um, but afterwards, in the time of the judges, there were iron chariots, it talks about. And so um, it's, it's likely that the men had uh, iron sickles. Uh, another way uh, that they would uh, build a sickle was a curved piece of wood, and they would put flint stones in it. Not like Flintstones, like Barney or whatever. Um, anyways, uh, stones that were flint that were really sharp, right? And they, they'd be able to cut with that. They actually have those that they found in ancient Egypt. Um, so this, uh, this cutting job was typically done by men, and so they just go through and cut, and they would stagger themselves, and they'd just go through a field, and then they would, uh, they would cut down the stalk at the, at, toward the base. And, uh, but they would just leave, uh, leave the straw there and the grain, and so afterwards, the women and children would often, would, they would come behind and they'd gather them up into sheaves and they'd bind them together uh, and they would stack them. And so, yeah, so this was typically women and children. Um, the next uh, stage of the harvest was not really a stage, but this was gleaning. So again, the owners of agricultural fields were governed and told in the law of Moses that they weren't supposed to mow the edge of the field. And after they went through, and mowed and, and, and bound the sheaves, they weren't supposed to go back a second time. So if there was any stragglers, any kind of like leftover anything, they were just supposed to leave it there. The poor, the widows, the foreigners were allowed to come through and pick up anything extra so that they could eat too. But then they would take these sheaves and they would transport them. They'd load them on donkeys or onto carts or a cart pulled by a donkey to a threshing floor. And a threshing floor was typically a large, flat, open area, often situated on a rock or hard clay. They were selected often like on a hill or a place where the prevailing winds were really strong um, so they wouldn't be by trees or anything like that. Um, and they would try to uh, uh, situate these threshing, store or th threshing floors on the eastern side of a village. The prevailing winds would come from the west, from the Mediterranean Sea, and so they would blow eastward, and so they would set up on the east side of the town so that the shaft wasn't blowing into everybody's houses and everybody's yards. Um, and then the, the next step was the actual threshing. So they would transport these sheaves to the threshing floor, and the threshing process is the process of basically loosening the grain from the straw. It could be done with a hand flail for small batches, but for larger applications, they would, they would have cattle tread on the grain, 
Um, they could roll cartwheels over, uh, over the, the sheaves. But they would also use something called a threshing sledge, which is referenced in Isaiah. So a sledge is like a sled. And then on the bottom of it, I think there's a picture of it. All my pictures are a little bit blurry. I'm sorry that they had really bad technology in the days of Ruth. But um, do we have a picture or is it just me up there? Oh, it's just me. Hey. Um, hey, there he is. Okay, so that's the threshing sledge. And so on the bottom, they'd actually have like rocks or pieces of iron. And as they're, they would pull that along over the straw, it would actually break up the straw and the grain and separate the grain uh, from the straw. The next step after threshing was called winnowing. And as, I, as we talk about these things, I'm sure that you're like remembering scriptures that, of, of metaphors and like revelations. But uh, winnowing is the process of removing the straw from the grain. The winds would come in typically in the afternoon. So during uh, these winds, the workers would throw the mixed product up into the air uh, with uh, winnowing forks. The straw and the shaft were light and they'd be carried away by the air and the heavier grain would just fall right back down. So there's a picture of some guys winnowing there. Um, and so the, the real light pieces would f just take off, and, but the straw would still go. We'd, you'd have three separate piles, the, the thicker straw, the grain right by you, and then the stuff that just took off. Uh, after the winnowing came the sifting, and it's uh, the part of the process where they removed dirt, rocks, other, other unwanted organic matter, like weeds, from the leftover grain. So they'd take that pile of grain, and this job was almost exclusively done by women. Um, they would use what's called a gerbal. It's a circular tool about two or three feet wide in diameter. I think they've got the picture there. There you go. So it's got a wooden rim. The rim is like two or three inches thick. And they would weave uh, you know, either like wood or more typically like papyrus or reeds as a mesh. And they would hold it at an angle, and they would shake it vis vigorously uh, at this angle, as the women, and the women would be blowing over it, and so any kind of extra shaft or straw would get, get blown out. Um, the real fine particles of dust would just fall right through, and, or like bad seed that was not, like, not mature or diseased or things like that, um, they would fall through. The larger like rocks and pebbles, as they're like picking stuff up off the threshing floor, would fall all the way down to the rim, but then they, they had to get it just right. Um, but the seed itself, the good seed, would stay basically in the middle of this sieve, this gerbal. And, um, and then they would go through by hand and uh, pick out anything else that wasn't seed. So it was a laborious process, this sifting. And, um, and then after this was the bagging. Either they would use baskets, sacks, or jars. The processed grain would be bagged for personal use or for sale. So this is, in, in chapter 2, um, this is what they're doing. They're, they're in harvest, and they're cutting, and they're binding, and Ruth is following behind, and she's gleaning. And um, as they're greeting uh, each other, and Boaz shows up at the work site, he's uh, the owner of this field, he stops the foreman, and he says, uh, who's the new girl there that's uh, following everybody? And the foreman says that this Naomi's daughter-in-law, daughter Ruth, and Boaz had heard all about Ruth. Everybody in town had been talking about it. And, and so he, he invites Ruth to eat lunch with all the workers, which normally the poor and the widows uh, weren't allowed to do that. He says, why don't you eat lunch with us? And if you want to drink any of the water that they're drinking, you can drink it. You've been so good to my relative, Naomi. Um, we just want to bless you here. And then on top of that, he tells the guys to leave her alone 
So that's a nice thing that he did. Uh, no cat calling, uh, no, nothing like that, guys. You leave her alone, okay? And actually, on top of that, guys, as you're going along um, and as the binding is happening, happening just, take some of the, just take some extra and throw it behind for her because uh, we want to bless her and give her a little bit of extra food. So Ruth comes home. She didn't even finish her lunch. She had so much leftover lunch. And then she comes home with 30 pounds of grain. So if you think of how much food, that's like one day for a teenager. But for a normal person, it's like several weeks worth of food. Um, and Ruth is like, what guy was looking at you <laughs> today when you were at work? How did you get so much food, essentially? Um, and Naomi, uh, Naomi hears that it was Boaz. And it's a turning point for Naomi. She finally blesses the Lord. She acknowledges the Lord is looking out for us. The Lord has provided for us. Before, she was bitter, but now she has hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Naomi's eyes open up. They brighten. She's no longer destined to a bitter Dead Sea end. But as the psalmist says in 27, 13, she's going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so she's at this turning point that there's this hope that comes on, that the Lord is starting to provide for them as they've returned to him. And so we learn some lessons from Ruth and Naomi. The first lesson we learn is uh, faithfulness. And there's perseverance. We see that Ruth clings to Naomi, that Ruth forsakes everything, even the easier road, going back home, and follows Naomi wherever that might lead. She's faithful. She's faithful as a daughter. And this characteristic of faithfulness really originates in the Lord. It's the Lord who is faithful to us. The Lord never leaves us. The Lord was always there. He was always there in the land of Israel. Even though Naomi and her family left and left the Lord, he was there waiting for them to come back home, just like he is for us. The Lord is waiting for us to come back to him. In turn, we're instructed to show that same faithfulness in our lives, both to the Lord, but also in those relationships that he's ordained, that faithfulness to our spouse, the faithfulness to our children, the faithfulness to our parents, etc. And another lesson we learn about is hope. We see Naomi's, she goes back to the land of Israel when she hears that there's food, right? She hears that the Lord has been good to Israel, he's provided, and so she clings to that hope and she goes back home. Ruth goes out to work in the midst of danger, hoping the Lord would guide and show her grace and favor. Naomi's hope is peaked again when she sees all the food that Ruth brings home and hears that it was Boaz. Hope is a theme throughout Ruth. And we have to, be, we have, to have a great hope in our life that the Lord will take care of us, that he will provide for us. But we also have Christ, who is our great hope. And in Thessalonians, we're told that the blessed hope is when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. We long to see that day when all the garbage of this life, the things I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, the national tragedy that we find ourselves in, the garbage of this life is eradicated. In the gospel, we have a hope for a future that can't be spoiled by famine or the failures of a culture because we're looking forward to Christ. We're looking forward to a city that he's preparing for us in eternity, a city whose architect and builder is God himself, not subject to sin and decay and death. That's our hope. That's the hope that we have for eternity. So whatever situation or tragedy you might find yourself in, there is always hope 
if you turn back to the Lord. And the third thing that we, lesson we see, the third thing we see here is love. We see an incredible expression of love from Ruth for her mother. Ruth gives up her people, gives up her gods, her old family, everything familiar, including the prospect of a husband. She gave up her life, really, her life, her rights, her prospect of success and pleasure to serve her mother-in-law. And she devoted herself to love her mom. She gave up her life for her mom as a living sacrifice. And this is a love that really originates in God. It comes from Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. This chesed, which speaks of God's covenant loyalty to his people, kindness, goodness, and it involves grace in that it was extended even when not deserved. And so we're called to live that same selfless love for our moms, for our children, for our neighbors, and according to Christ, even for our enemies. So may we learn daily to pick up our cross and follow him, to learn from him. And may in time our feelings catch up with the fact that we must give ourselves for others to love them. Just as we remember today how much a good mom gives up for her child.